Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 19 of the Sin Essential Podcast. My name is John Gilpatrick. Joining me this week is Aaron Pinkston. Aaron, how are you doing? Doing pretty well. Uh, sort of a lazy Sunday as we're recording. Uh, so I, I feel like I need to get my energy up, but uh, I think we can definitely, definitely won't have a problem with energy talking about Bonnie and Clyde. So, uh, I wouldn't uh, think so. I believe yeah. this Sunday is actually the exact date of the 50th anniversary, um, which I know is kind of the reason why we're writing about it this week, as a lot of people probably are. So um, yes, sir. happy to be honoring that date with uh, with you guys. And, and Sarah Gore also joining us. Sarah, what's going on with you? Um, I'm enjoying this uh, lovely one-hour break we're about to take from me looking at anything related to the news. So uh, I'm yeah. feeling pretty good right now. <laughs> I know, sort of the elephant in the room right now. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. Well, we're going to talk about Bonnie and Clyde, as we mentioned. Um, Aaron, you wrote um, our opening take about the film this week, like I said, in honor of its 50th anniversary. Do you want to kind of walk us through why you think Bonnie and Clyde is important and stuff like that. Sure. Well, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's fairly obvious as, as you've pointed out, why we have, why we were talking about writing about the film this week. Um, Bonnie and Clyde has sort of been put on a pedestal, uh, I think for, for good reason, but certainly for the time in which it was made, uh, 1967 was, a pretty stark turning point in Hollywood. Um, the new Hollywood coming along through the 1970s being sort of a, a strange outlier in, in terms of Hollywood history. I mean, previous to that, um, through the studio system years where producers were sort of the, the key figures in, in making films, uh, and, you know, not, not in every case, but, I think for, for the most part. Uh, and then that sort of changed in, in Bonnie and Clyde is, is one of the films that people consider as being the, the change in that, that sort of sea, sea change as it were, where filmmakers uh, were becoming more powerful and they were able to explore different topics. Uh, there was certainly an uptick of violence, which Bonnie and Clyde definitely has. Uh, and, uh, I don't know, more artistic visions in terms of the way films were shot, uh, the way scripts were written and everything. And mm-hmm. and so, yeah, so Bonnie and Clyde is sort of championed on that. And of course, it wasn't the only film uh, that sort of brought along, wasn't the only important film that was made in 1967. I think we'll get into that a little bit more later. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think personally, this is a film I've, I've seen quite often. I, I don't, I'd say four or five times. Uh, I don't really have any personal connection to it in any way, other than it just being a really great and fun film and uh, one that I was happy to revisit on its 50th anniversary. Cool. Uh, Sarah, Bonnie and Clyde, is this uh, one that you've seen a bunch and or are you coming at it from the first time? Uh, no, I saw it once before when I was going through a new Hollywood phase um, <laughs> and it's one of the kind of classics of that. Um, so I popped it in thinking that I was probably going to love it and I just don't love this movie. Hmm, Um, I think it's fine. 
Sarah, uh, ever the contrarian. I know it's not. It's not a uh, this this one. Unlike my uh, hot Gone with the Wind takes. <laughs> yeah, I last time you were on the show. Positive. <laughs> Previously, honest and essential. <laughs> positive, I was correct. Positive, I am correct. Gone with the Wind is garbage. That is just a fact, not my fault. Uh, whereas Bonnie and Clyde, this is just a personal uh, personal opinion. Where like I just really I don't enjoy it in a way where I'm like having a great time watching it it's just sort of like ah, i'm glad i'm i've seen it i don't really want to watch it again like it's fine um but that said i still think it's really interesting i think there's a lot to talk about with it i think um seeing young warren Beatty and young faye dunaway um there's plenty of reason to watch it for that alone so uh, i think we'll have a good good chat today so I, th- I think i'll find uh you know chatting about it is a lot more fun for me than actually watching it is <laughs> i find that's the case for like a lot of the movies we talk about anymore <laughs> um and i kind of feel similarly to sarah i don't think i'm as down on it as you are but i don't think it's fair to say i'm down on it i'm not down on it it was just that it's not a it's not a favorite of mine okay i'm, I'm I'm happy enough that I've seen it. Maybe but. I'm a little bit more down. <laughs> um, because like, I'm, I'm the same as you. Like I saw it for the first time. I must've been in college and I was kind of, you know, diving into the films of this era for the first time. And like, it just like totally, I, I like fell in love. I thought it was amazing. And I, I couldn't remember like having seen anything like that before. And I thought it was so cool. And, and I haven't watched it since it's been almost 10 years. Um, and I was excited to watch it again. And it just like kind of didn't do all that much for me this time around. And I don't know if it's because I've just seen a lot more since then. And it's like, it doesn't feel as novel as it did to me back then. But um, yeah, I didn't have that much fun with it. And I thought I was going to. And um, I mean, it's certainly like, it's an interesting film. And I am excited to talk about it. But I wasn't like over the moon like I was expecting to be. And that was kind of a bummer. Um, so, uh, so yeah, Aaron, oddly enough, you're going to be on an island of sorts today, uh, which I don't think you were probably expecting. Um, but, uh, let's jump into it. Um, the film's depiction of violence and, um, and I mean, this was like a big deal, right? There was a great piece I read a few days ago, um, by Jason Bailey. He's a film critic for, um, Flavorwire, and he wrote about, Pauline Kael's original review of Bonnie and Clyde in The New Yorker back in 1967. And um, it's a really interesting piece. I recommend you check it out. But um, the way that, like, people were so turned off by the violence, like, and and we had talked a little bit about this before we started recording, of how, like, the film, like, had a really hard time getting released, and, like, Warren Beatty was pretty instrumental in, like, getting people to see the film because Warner Brothers and people of the era were so turned off by the way that it depicts violence, particularly in the final scene. Um, I was just kind of wondering, like, I mean, obviously I think we've been desensitized to a large extent toward the type of violence that this film shows. Um, But did it still stand out to you at all watching it this time around, Aaron? Well, I mean, certainly I think when you look at the last scene of the film, uh, which is one of the most... Um, famous endings of any American film ever sure. where uh, Bonnie and Clyde finally get their comeuppance and are gunned down. I, the way that that scene is shot, I think it, it's very 
reminiscent in my mind to something like the famous shower scene in Psycho, um, with the the notable exception that it, it is you do sort of see the blood uh, in in the, the final scene of Bonnie and Clyde. I, I think the way it, it's so kinetically shot and cut, uh, and the way that the the bodies of uh, Bonnie and Clyde are moving. They're sort of like, it's like this dance of death, I think it's been called many mm-hmm. times, uh, is, I mean, it's really alluring and it, it's really striking. And even though I've seen the film, you know, a number of times and obviously seen that particular scene probably even more times than I've seen the full film. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's still, it still kind of gets to me. And then it just sort of ends and the end comes up at, uh, just you know, a title card that says the end right after that happens, and it's, it's, uh, yeah. It, I mean, it, it shakes me still. Yeah, I I hear you, Sarah. What about you? Uh, well, I was reading a little bit about it, and I thought it was interesting that uh, I didn't realize it was one of the first time squibs were used to that extent, huh. um, which are pretty pretty standard now. Like, uh, I guess a little definition in case you're aware it's the little blood packets that explode on an actor's chest so it so we're moving from this era where somebody might get shot and you know they clutch their hand immediately over where they're supposedly shot because we don't they didn't have a good way to show like a bullet hole Uh it or it was too graphic something like that something along those lines and then here we have bonnie and clyde literally being like riddled with bullets and like shaking as each one hits them and then all of these squibs just exploding with blood and this like peck and paw-esque like monstrosity um so i still think it's actually pretty effective um even if it does have that tinge of like late 60s early 70s sort of like we weren't really good at like making blood look real (laughs) yeah (laughs) it definitely doesn't look real yeah it's definitely an, an artificial sort of uh, image, but I yeah. think that that isn't definitely a negative in my mind. I mean, yeah, it's, it's very performative. I mean, people don't die like that, obviously. <laughs> right. I agree. I think that I don't fault the film for not, you know, looking realistic. It's certainly, like, films today still will get cartoonish with the way they kill people in different ways. But um, yeah, it depends it's, it's, on the director, depends on the genre. What does it look like when somebody gets shot? And it's like, if Paul Verhoeven's in charge, then they literally explode. Like. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's, it's also sort of an interesting commentary on uh, the way that audiences are supposed to feel about um, this sort of scene. I mean, mm-hmm. sort of famously with crime films of the 30s and 40s, uh, especially after the, the production code was put into effect, I, the the criminal, even if the film was about a criminal, and even if the criminal wasn't really that bad, like we're supposed to like him, like a James Cagney kind of criminal, uh, they have to be killed at the end. I mean, yeah. that that had to happen. Um, so to sort of do it in this film where I think in a lot of ways, um, I mean, Bonnie and Clyde are... are heroes on sort of a mythical level that in some ways um, I think you're supposed to like them even more than, you know, some of those classic gangsters Um, because, you know, they're just in, in some ways they're that sometimes they're just kind of fun to hang around, you know, and goof around with. Um, So to kind of have that response to them throughout the film um, and then see how they end up, I think is, I, I think, Arthur Penn is definitely playing with that. 
that expectation of how we're supposed to uh, revel in the criminals finally getting it, but also being shocked, obviously, with the the extent that he takes it and, and sort of liking these characters and maybe... I don't know if everyone would feel the same way, but maybe wanting them to get away uh, at the end or sort of live out, you know, their, their lives. Uh, and then, nope, <laughs> they're, they're, they have to be destroyed and it's, it's going to be uh, even more exaggerated than, than films, the previous generation's films would allow for. Um, Sarah, anything, any other thoughts on this? Nope. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think Aaron. Do you, what do you? Well. Yeah. What do you? Did you? I'm. I'm wondering. Did you guys like? Did you feel like you liked Bonnie and Clyde, or like how you know throughout the film? I mean, obviously they're not you, like. Perfect. When you say liked Bonnie and Clyde, you're referring to the characters. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like. I mean, obviously, the film in a lot of ways sets up that you know, these are sort of working kind of people. They're like not out to like hurt really anyone um, necessarily, unless they have to, you know, they're, they're robbing banks, but that's uh, very distinct than, you know, robbing, you know, regular sort of working people. I mean, this is sort of a trope that's been in movies ever since, you know, a lot of bank robbery movies now, Yeah. Uh, you know, right. that the bank is sort of the enemy. That was hell you know, high so, water last year. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, like, and then, obviously, you know, the the film is very, it's not a serious movie. I mean, this isn't, like, a hard-boiled sort of uh, bank robbery movie that we might see today. Uh, you know, it's very, it's sort of, in a, a lot of times, it's very light, and there's a lot of uh, humor and kooky characters. Right. Um, so I'm wondering, just, like, what were your guys' thoughts on the characters of Bonnie and Clyde? Did you like them? And, and maybe how did that affect where they eventually end up. I do not like them. Um, And I have a hard time liking characters in films like this um, who are sort of the robbers, even if they have good intentions. And my problem ultimately stems from the fact that they're creating conditions uh, under which innocent people can get killed. And so, I mean, even if their intentions are good and we see them, there's a scene early on where they're shooting, they're, you know, kind of hanging out at this house and the guy shows up who used to own it. um, And he's like, oh, the bank took it away from me. And there's a, uh, you know, owned by X and X bank uh, sign out in front that they all start shooting at. And it's like, okay, like, see, like, they're not that bad. They're like only robbing the bad bankers. And it's like far be it for me to defend bankers, but... Um, I do think that like this sort of outlaw attitude is dangerous and that when you end up trying to flee from place, you know, X place or Y place and you end up in shootouts with police, you, um, threaten people who don't, you know, there's bullets flying. Like it's a direct result of the things that they were doing and I have a hard time really sympathizing with them um, for that reason. And then there's another scene that um, was especially egregious in this front, in my opinion, when um, they find the Texas Ranger in the woods and Mm -hmm. they like handcuff him and then they start to just kind of humiliate him um, because they, I think, are reveling in some of the attention they've been getting. 
and that was kind of a really like nasty scene. I felt like mean spirited. Um, and, um, I mean, that guy kind of gets his come up and, or, right. uh, you know, he, yeah, I mean, they that, get their that, come up and from him later on in the film, but yeah, um, that basically is right. Sort of <laughs> in a lot of ways, like that's the, that's them sealing their fate basically when they do that. Yeah. yeah. yeah you sort of so know that that's like, scene. that's coming back around. <laughs> yeah. Um, Sarah, what about you? Do you like Bonnie and Clyde? Um, so something that I talk about a little bit in my piece this week is that I just, I kind of appreciate the way they feel uh, real. They feel like uh, real human people. Um, and part of that comes from, like, I don't talk about this too much in my piece, but it's an example that I'm thinking of as you're talking about the violence in the film. It's like their sort of desperate need to believe that they didn't have a choice. And it's sort of like mm-hmm. you see uh, Clyde's brother kind of, kind of, desperately just being like you didn't have a choice right you didn't have a choice when you killed those people right right and he's just kind of like yeah yeah no like no i didn't and you just see him like wanting to rationalize it either to himself or to his brother or like both at the same time where it's like we the audience know and we can kind of see that he knows that that's not true like there were smarter ways to do this where people didn't have to die the best example maybe being when their getaway driver is a total idiot and parks the car oh my God. and then it takes them forever to leave, which gives enough time for, which clearly looks like not somebody. It's, I mean, it's not the president of the bank. It's like maybe a bank teller yeah. who's like making okay money. Right. Uh, and they shoot him in the face and you see the blood like rushing down and he falls off the side of the car and they're like, well, he was going to catch us, but it's like, yeah, but does that really justify it? Like, can you really try and say you couldn't have just driven faster or pushed or him the off door, and yeah. <laughs> open the door and flung him off? Like, do you really, I don't think any of us believe that you, you couldn't have done anything else because a lot of the times I think the movie is actually pretty good at showing them reacting in sort of this blind panic. Like they don't look cool and calm and collected and like, mm-hmm. yeah, we're really thinking this through. They look like a bunch of scared children. Um, which is exactly what they are. So I don't, it's not like I liked or disliked them. I just appreciated the level of complexity yeah. uh, that they bothered to try and give them because I feel like especially this story could have been very easily simplified. And I feel like it has been in other versions of the telling where it's just like two sex crazed, like young kids in love do a bunch of violence and they, and they love it. And like, that's the end of it when really it's clearly like infinitely more complicated than that. And I really feel like this movie did a pretty good job at trying to express that in various different ways. Yeah, I agree. I think the film goes like kind of out of its way at times to show that these are not like the cool customers that like a picture in the paper might make it look like. Um, right. which is, I think just kind of a good thing for like humanity. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, uh, that's definitely one of, one of the, the wavelengths that the film is working on. I mean, there, it, it pretty openly talks about it. Like there, there's a moment where, uh, it's when they are meeting with, uh, Bonnie's family 
and Clyde is talking with the mother and, you know, the mother is talking about things she's seen in the paper and, and, and Clyde, Clyde says something to the effect that if, if everything that they wrote about in the paper were true, we'd be millionaires. Um, Mm, so there, there's definitely, I think, obviously a lot of the, the big, one of the biggest themes in the film is, is about the myth making of, uh, the Bonnie and Bonnie and Clyde. And, and um, I don't know a lot about the sort of historical facts, um, but certainly uh, they have become sort of Jesse James like figures sure. uh, in American history where, you know, there's been probably hundreds of, you know, criminals at the time like them who were doing worse things were robbing more banks, whatever, but they're kind of the people we know about. Um, and I think the film plays with that idea uh, a lot. Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the other things that um, we're writing about this week, Sarah, you wrote about this, is kind of like, I guess, sexual dysfunction within the film, and specifically between Bonnie and Clyde. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I have some thoughts as well. Yeah, so that was one of the ways that I felt like um, they became more real. And so what I think is interesting is so, in the film, Clyde is more or less impotent. Like, he makes it very clear in the dialogue. He's like, if you want some kind of lover boy, like, if you basically, if you want sex, I can't promise you that. Yeah. I don't know if I can do that. So you better get comfortable with that now. Like, very in your face that, like, that is not going to be a major part of this relationship because he can't. I mean, they eventually do, like, consummate the relationship later, but it's, like, much later, and it feels like a very much, like, a one-off kind of thing, and it's, like, they've already built up this relationship where that doesn't feel like the thing that, like, makes them a true couple. It feels like everything else that's already happened has already brought them together, and I already feel like they love each other and care about each other and have all these other levels. But what I think is interesting is that that impotency, there is nothing in historical fact that we know of that Mm. says that that is true that was a complete invention of um the screenwriters and warren Beatty, and even that was actually a compromise because what they originally wanted was for clyde to be bisexual yes right Um, (laughs) so they they wanted it to be like a a strange kind of a threesome with bonnie clyde and the getaway driver which is also as far as we know a complete fabrication and has no real basis in history. So they weren't trying to make that historical. They were trying to express something by having the sexual relationship be unusual in some way. And so what I was reading was that they backed away from the bisexuality uh, in large part due to censorship where they're like, this is never going to make it to the like ground floor. This is never going to make it to the theater. Like yeah. they're not going to let this be in the movie. So I think it's interesting that they then turn to the impotency thing, which I actually think works a little bit better. Um, and to their credit, what they were trying to avoid was with the mindset at the time being extremely anti-gay and un- unopen to bisexuality. Like we barely have just started to recognize that bisexuality is not like a fad. Yeah. <laughs> um, was that they worried that if people saw that, then they would assume it was the movie telling them that, oh, he's this weird sexual deviant. He's mentally, like, messed up, and that's why he's a criminal. And they're like, no, we actually don't want to make that argument. We just want there to be some level of empathy for how this relationship doesn't function the way a normal one does. So we don't want you to be thinking that it's like, oh, he has moral failings. 
Uh, so that's what I ended up switching it to that. I ended up thinking that it works incredibly well because it removes sex from the equation from his relationship with Bonnie pretty immediately where they make it clear that Bonnie does want more. Uh, but the reason that she'll stay with Clyde is because of what he sees in her beyond that, how he sees her as more than that, how he, because he can't do anything, you know, sexually, he isn't looking at her and thinking, Oh, I'm telling you you're different and special. Cause I want to fuck you. Mm-hmm. I can't fuck you but I know that you're different and special. Mm -hmm. And then you see that click with her as like, clearly nobody has ever said this before. (laughs) Like nobody has ever said it in a way where she felt like she could believe them, like they meant it. And he's giving her that. And that was just something that I really loved. And I thought was really interesting and just kind of great. Yeah. No, kind of went off on a tangent for a bit. No, no, no. It was really good. And I can't wait to read the rest of your piece. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, you kind of hit all the things that I want to talk about. The getaway driver who you mentioned is, I think, CW, right? Yeah. I always get, it's not WC, it's CW. CW. <laughs> it's not HW. That's coming later. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, I mean, like, he's such a weird character. And uh, you could see, like, what, it's not hard to read into what, like, they're trying to do with him. Um, and But you can also, like, fairly, t- tell fairly easily that, uh, it's maybe not as explored as they'd like it to be. Um, the scene where they are like towards the end of the films with his family and, um, they've sort of set it up so that like, they're going to get caught and, um, he's like in his bedroom window watching them and like hoping that they're going to get away and then they get away and he like looks orgasmic and it's just so interesting um and uh, you know the piece i talked about earlier the pauline kale like she like knocked the film pretty hard for like compromising in that way um and i found that that whole like sort of subplot just bubbling it was it was uh really interesting and something that i definitely didn't remember from the first time i watched it um Mm -hmm. aaron what do you think yeah, well, I don't know. I, I obviously like sexuality is a big part of this film. Um, it is. I feel obviously there. It said there's something to be said that uh, it is only after they they finally do have sex that the, that's basically at the end of their lives. Yeah. And pretty much the next scene is when they get killed. Um, so I, I don't know. I haven't really totally thought through on, on what that might be saying, but I think there's there's definitely something there that uh, the film is trying to say about uh, sexual repression uh, and finally them consummating the relationship. Um, obviously, when we meet the the very opening of the film, when we meet Bonnie, it's uh, it almost has this sort of uh, yeah like softcore kind of like nineteen eighties sort of uh look at at her i mean she she does i mean it basically does the line between uh how do i want to say this uh the way that they shoot it basically intimates that uh you're you're seeing her uh as a naked person but you pretty much are only seeing like her back and, and sort of uh glances around her um but it's i mean it's still definitely very sexual i think the first image you see is a close-up on her lips um you know which is uh, a trope that 
you know, we see a lot, you know, uh, uh, it's definitely intimating something. And then there's the famous shot with her and the cigar. I mean, you know, obviously sometimes a cigar is a cigar, right? But not always. Um, you know, so there, there's definitely uh, hints of it throughout, I think, particularly in her character and uh, her sexuality. Um, of course, the nineteen late 1960s, and I'm no expert on this, but uh, sexual revolution uh, is either there or right around the corner. Uh, so, you know, women were at that time, you know, stepping up as being public sexual figures, uh, in, I guess in some ways the first time, again, I'm no expert, so that might be totally wrong, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of all over, uh, all over the film. For sure. Um, so we talked a little bit about how 1967 was like a big year for, uh, changes in Hollywood and the way films are getting made. And to that end, the Oscars were, um, I think, you know, super notable that year. There's a great book mm-hmm. by Mark Harris about this, uh, Pictures at a Revolution, I believe it's called. Um, Aaron, you're writing our Oscar piece for this week, right? Yeah, I kind of have to. I feel like we kind of have to uh, <laughs> talk about the Oscars uh, when we talk about this year, the 50th anniversary, and one of the one of like the most stacked uh, and most interestingly diverse uh, Oscars nominations and winners uh, ever. So um, I haven't at, at the moment we're talking about this, I haven't totally uh, gone through all of my thoughts and I haven't seen everything that I know I need to see. Um, but I think, you know, there, there's the obvious big guns where, so the, the best picture race was uh, Bonnie and Clyde, mm-hmm. uh, The Graduate, which is another sort of landmark film of the era. Um, you had the the winner was In the Heat of the Night. Uh, there was uh, the, the sort of strange uh, nomination for best picture was Dr. Doolittle, which I, for, I just, just watched for the first time. Uh, and it's definitely different than what I remember from Patty Murphy remake. Um, it's <laughs> better it's or worse. Almost, <laughs> yeah. Well, probably better. I don't know. It's, it's still a weird kind of movie about a guy who talks to animals. Um, but it, it's much more in this sort of tone of like sort of, uh, fantasy epics of the time, I guess. Like the, the whole second half of the movie, which is like two and a half hours long, by the way, oh, um, is about them traveling to like this mysterious island to find like this one-of-a-kind animal. So it, it kind of like becomes, I don't know, like almost like a David Lean movie in the second half, <laughs> uh, which is not what I was expecting, but still sort of a, a weird... Uh, inclusion. Um, you also had films like In Cold Blood, uh, the Truman Capote adaptation, uh, which is a, a, another sort of, it's, it's definitely a different look at uh, two criminals on the run than Bonnie and Clyde is. Yeah. A little, little bit more austere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes, it is. Um, what else were, were big nominations that year? I guess think those coming were. To dinner was the guess other. Who's coming to dinner. Yeah, that was the fifth of the best picture. Uh, nominations and obviously uh, it, it might not have as much reverence today as some of those other films um, 
but is another one that I watched for the first time recently. Um, actually, when I wrote a piece on Catherine Hepburn, uh, I think late last year, uh, and that was another movie that was a little bit different than what I sort of expected it to be going into the first time that I was watching it. Um, yeah, so a lot of uh, big heavy hitters, a lot of films about crime and about race, uh, and obviously a lot of films that started really pushing the envelope and being recognized for specifically for pushing the envelope than, than we had really previously seen. So yeah, the, the, you know, the, the idea that this was sort of a turning point in, uh, in film history, I think when you just look at the Oscar nominees and, and the films that were being represented uh, for, you know, historically for that year, I think you can really see it. Just like Cool Hand Luke that year. Oh yeah, Cool Hand Luke. Yeah, it wasn't nominated for Best Picture, but no. and and Paul Newman didn't win Best Actor, which that might be uh, where I have to go with my Oscars piece uh, because man, that that's just a super iconic uh, role and one that I love. I mean, just the Best Actor that year, you had Rod Steiger who <laughs> won for In the Heat of the Night, which I've never seen. But then you have Warren Beatty for Bunny and Clyde, Dustin Hoffman for The Graduate, Paul Newman for Cool Hand Luke, and Spencer Tracy for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, which... Yeah, it's like, the, it's really incredible. And then you look at, you have it pulled up, the, the actresses of that year also, yeah. where it was just it's another just stacked competition. I, I have no idea where I'm going to go with that one, and uh, what I think would be the best performance in, in that bunch either. I know Catherine Hepburn won for Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, um, but you also... I do want to say that yeah. uh, I was just looking at like that very stacked year as well, and now it is feeling very funny to me that they nominated for multiple categories, both Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and In the Heat of the Night, <laughs> and then we're like, how can we make sure we don't nominate S- Sidney Poitier for like anything? Yeah, that's was just like, we want this movie, so like, ooh, no, we're not. Ooh, that, no, yeah, not. Oh that's just saying a mission, right? Because, so they, they nominated like Seeger for, <laughs> yeah, they nominated Seeger for Best Actor, and so I, I can... I'm not sure if they were thinking of Poitier as supporting. I mean, they're they're pretty much like dual leads in the film. Um, it's kind of hard to argue one or the other. And we've had arguments on this podcast about supporting actor versus lead actors. So I don't know. I don't know what where they were standing in, in that sort of thing. But yeah, it's kind of hard to see them nominating two actors in best supporting actor when you have the lineup that they had there. So yeah, that it's definitely a notable omission um, and sort of a tough one. Um, but yeah, it's it's tough. Yeah, um, I've got Bonnie and Clyde as having ten nominations, and it won two. One of them was for best cinematography, um, mm-hmm. and uh, the other was then, of course, Estelle Parsons for best supporting actress as yeah, who we haven't Blanche. mentioned. We haven't talked about Blanche yet. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so, what do you think about Blanche? I fucking hated her. <laughs> and I felt so bad because I was like, ugh, I, I feel like it's partly like a uh, sort of, there's, there's some old school of acting type, you know, affectations, I suppose, uh-huh. where I'm just like, eh, this, I feel like this probably went over better at a time where this was a little more like st- stereotypical, I guess. But just like her screaming nonstop, <laughs> I'm like, 
Oh my God, calm down. And apparently the real life Blanche saw the movie and was like, they made me look like a shrieking idiot. Fuck this movie. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, girl, I'm kind of with you on that point. I wouldn't be happy with that portrayal either. Yeah, I, I, I do like love the transformation that character gets though to where, um, a scene that we definitely need to talk about and a particular cameo in the movie, uh, very notable oh, one where, uh, where the group sort of, uh, uh, kidnapped for lack of a better word, a couple and how cell so part, how Blanche is just like, she's in on this now. <laughs> like yeah. she's, she doesn't, she gives no more fucks. Like she's, she's ready to like, just be in the group and have fun. Um, I don't know. that, for some reason, like that's a funny moment for me seeing her in that scene. Um, but yeah, it's definitely not a well-rounded character in any in any form or function. Um, it is a fun performance, though. She's not forgettable, that's for sure. Yeah. And going into this, like I said, I hadn't seen it in maybe ten years. And one of the few things that, like, I knew was, like, oh, my God, Blanche. (laughs) 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 Um, But, uh, yeah, so you mentioned the scene with, uh, well, you didn't mention him by name, Gene Wilder. Yeah, um, his first movie. Is that his first movie? Yeah, it's it's his first movie, but when you watch him, it's, like, this is, like, he's he's already at the top of his game. Yeah, yeah. This is, like, it's like he figured out his whole persona before he'd ever been in a movie and just, like, perfects it right out of the gate. It's really amazing. Yeah, it's great, and um, I totally forgot about this. I'm not sure how, and, uh, yeah, they sort of, like, uh, um, ride his car, and he's with his girlfriend, wife? Yeah, they're... Girlfriend. Yeah, girlfriend. Like trying to woo her. They're definitely right. not married. I, yeah. I didn't think so. Um, that's part because that's when she says she's thirty three, and he looks like, oh, <laughs> fuck. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. And uh, they ride her off the ride them off the road and pick them up, and then they go and get sandwiches and like have a grand right. old time, and then uh, they throw them out of the car. Right, because. Uh, uh, he they ask him what he does for a living, and he says he's an undertaker. And uh, Bonnie is not pleased about that because I think she's having some uh, issues with her own mortality uh, by this point in the movie, knowing that it's probably coming. So, yeah. um, it's also funny that this like total doofus, like weirdo guy, is like the most serious job. <laughs> totally uh not what you would expect him yeah, to be it's just why i want willy wonka doing grief counseling with me and my family <laughs> <laughs> right um sarah were there any other scenes that we haven't really talked about that you particularly enjoy um let me think about that for a second Aaron, i do you feel have like yeah go ahead sir no no you go ahead i'm gonna have to think for a minute okay um I like the uh, one particular moment after uh, a bank that they rob and they have sort of an altercation with, um, with an old man in, in the bank and they, uh, Clyde asks him, he's like making a deposit or something and there's some money on, on the counter and he asks him if, if that's, if that's the old man's money or if that's the bank's money. Uh, and then, and so uh, it's his money. So they let him keep it. Uh, and then afterward, you get sort of like a, looks like something like I, like him being interviewed. I don't, 
I guess it's for like a newspaper story. I don't know, but it it's kind of shot like it's for like the nightly news, which is weird. Uh, now that I'm thinking about it, uh, that's sort of strange. But but he has a quote about uh, you know he they're all right with him, and uh, you know when they get killed, me and my wife are going to come to their funeral with flowers. <laughs> yeah. So I, I th- yeah that I that that moment just sort of um, uh, I think is important in the way that it builds sort of the myth of these characters and also uh, how they were viewed by uh, a regular public, which I don't know if it's totally true or not, but, you know, a regular public, you know, living through the great depression that these people are heroes, you know, um, they're, they're taking down the banks that, uh, you know, the, the people who are taking away our homes. So mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think that that's a nice little moment. Uh, you had already mentioned the scene near the beginning of the film um, uh, when they uh, encounter the man who's lost his home. Uh, and that is, uh, I think, a, a pretty pointed scene. Yeah, I, I, lo- I also love the, the scene where they, uh, <laughs> they first meet CW. Uh, <laughs> and just that, that, uh, that, that uh, conversation they have, um, you know, in... in Bonnie, sort of for the famous ex- exclamation that she makes that we rob banks. Right. And his reaction to that, where he's just like, I don't ex- even exactly know like how to describe it. Like he's, it's sort of like an aw shucks, but it's like also like, I can't believe that I'm here with like, like these sort of cool, dangerous people. And like, this is like the kind of life that I want to live. Um, yeah, there's like, there's like he's such he a like, weird character. He like turn like he like turns around and is like he like taps on like the, the post of the building. Like I, I don't even know what's going on through his head, but uh, it's sort of a funny little uh, moment. Um, Sarah, any yeah. come to mind for you? Yeah, so not so much a scene, but just something um, that goes back to what Aaron kind of kicked off our discussion with, just that how movies like this are both about the time in which they're set and the time in which they're made. Um, and just thinking about Bonnie and Clyde as two young people, um, being very explicit about kind of basically being anti-establishment because the establishment, it's the great depression has failed them in like no (laughs) small ways. Um, being, you know, to, about, like I'm in a movie for young people in 1967 where all of these disaffected youth are feeling like the establishments that they and their parents grew up with have failed them and are failing them and they don't know what else to do and so they're also lashing out yeah. um, and which I also think is important that um, in this it, it doesn't feel as much like especially because of how explicit the violence is at the end that Bonnie and Clyde are getting what they deserve it feels like a tragedy in a lot of ways. Like it feels yeah. like a, a more satisfying thing that could have been like, if you're making that comparison to the present day would have been like maybe them in jail or something where you're like, well, I can't argue like that's where it should be. They killed people or like something like that, that feels like an appropriate use of force and an appropriate, like meeting out of justice mm-hmm. instead of this, like, horrific graphic over the top like they're clearly already fucking dead you can stop now like you're just doing this for you because you have some kind of issue with it like this isn't like you trying to be a good cop this is you hate these kids so you want them dead 
feeling like a little bit more on the side of the uh, youth of the time. Um, despite the fact that they don't get a happy ending, it feels like it's a tragedy that they don't instead of something we should be like, like a cautionary tale, like this is going to happen to you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. No, it's really interesting. Um, I'll just mention one more scene. That's the, uh, one of the first robberies that we see where uh, it's just Clyde and Bonnie and he goes in to rob the bank and the guy's like, oh, we've been closed for three weeks. Right. And he's like, oh, okay, well, let me just look around. And it's like, there's nothing in there. And he comes out, and she's just, like, laughing and laughing and laughing at him. And just, like, in the context of what we were talking about earlier regarding, like, the sexual dysfunction, that seems like an especially interesting sort of uh, predictor of what's going to come because um, I don't think that they, at that point in the film, had addressed uh, sort of what... Well, I mean, you know, you could argue whether they do at all, right? But... Um, it just feels like uh, something that um, parallels sort of what's going on with them personally in an interesting way. And it's also just really funny. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I guess um, that's kind of about it. But sh- do you have any final thoughts you want to share, Aaron? Uh, well, I guess if we're going to... We haven't mentioned the, the final of the uh, major performances of the film, and that's Gene Hackman. Yeah, uh, I, I guess we haven't. <laughs> really fun to, to see in this movie. Um, I mean, this is one of his earliest films as well. Uh, and he obviously went on to a great prolific career. So yeah, in the Poseidon uh, adventure. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, it's fun to see, uh, a young spry Gene, Hack- Gene Hackman is as young and as spry as you can imagine him. Yeah. Right. Uh, <laughs> here. Yeah. Old Royal Ten. It's sort of the, uh, yeah, sort of the, obviously playing the brother of Clyde and uh, in some ways uh, a more, how would you describe him? I think he's a little bit more, He's he's he kind of seems in, in a way like the actual criminal of the family in yeah. some ways. Uh, and it, it's almost like Clyde is just trying to be like his brother. I don't know if that's really in the film, but kind of I'm thinking about it now. It's sort of like he needs to, like, Clyde's, like, 90% of the way there, and he needs his brother to sort of nudge him that last 10%. Yeah. Um, Sarah, any final thoughts from you? Nope. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My final thoughts are that you can follow us on Twitter, at The Sin Essential, and uh, look us up on Facebook. Also, at The Sin Essential, you can subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, and while you're there, leave us a review. Um, it will help other people discover and enjoy the show. Also want to thank uh, the Hemingbirds for the use of the song Half a Second off their album Half a Second, which you heard in the beginning. And um, we've got lots of cool stuff coming up. Um, well, that you've probably already read about Bonnie and Clyde by the time this goes up. But uh, Aaron, do you want to mention what we've got coming up in the next few weeks on the site? Yeah, so next week we're going to talk about Bong Joon-ho's The Host, uh, which is one of the um, standard bearers for the new South Korean cinema, uh, Bong Joon-ho, one of the, uh, one of South Korea's most beloved directors at the time. Uh, his newest film, Okja, just came out a few weeks ago on Netflix, and I'm assuming pretty much everyone has seen um, because it's so easy to see. Uh, and yeah, I haven't the seen it yet. <laughs> Yeah, you haven't seen it. I haven't seen it in a while. So I'm, I, I might watch it this afternoon just to kind of reorient myself with it. Um, but yeah, that should be a really fun week. Um, 
I know that uh, Sarah will be opening uh, on Fitzcarraldo uh, yes. in a couple of weeks. Oh, I'm cool. guessing we'll probably we'll want to be talk, talking about the jungle. Talk <laughs> about that movie on probably our next podcast. So um, that'll be a good one. I, I'm always up for some Werner Herzog. I yeah. mean, how can you not be? Uh, but speaking of things we haven't seen, John, have you still not seen uh, Beauty and the Beast? I still have not seen it, but... Great. I'm <laughs> proud of you. <laughs> I need to ride that one out. <laughs> I was going to do a joke about how I did see it, and I thought Emma Watson was really good in it, but... Um... <laughs> oh, is that the wrong Beauty and the Beast? Oh, my God. Ah, <laughs> oh, dang it. Damn. Uh, all right. So, anyway, we'll be back again soon, hopefully for uh, Fitzcarraldo. And uh, in the meantime, uh, thank you for listening, and we will talk to you again soon. Bye.